You're listening to the Physics Ed Podcast. For hundreds of ideas, free experiments and more, go to physicseducation.com.au. And now, here's your host, Ben Newsom. Yes, welcome again for another Phys Ed Podcast. Hey, glad to have you again for another chat around science and STEM and all that sort of thing. And this week, we're definitely talking about science as we head on up to Canada to hang out with Jacqueline Monteith, who is a science instructional coach with the Frontier School Division. She loves teaching science and importantly, via distance and for isolated communities in all sorts of areas right across Manitoba. She does an amazing job with working kids who really are isolated, like you wouldn't believe, like seriously, we're talking ice roads to be able to get into their sites. She does an amazing job, and this chat is all about how she supports those students and the teachers in making sure that you know their inquiry-based learning is awesome, relevant, and engaging. So uh, let's get right into it. This is the Physics Ed Podcast. We're all about science, ed tech, and more. To see 100 fun, free experiments you can do with your class, go to physicseducation.com.au. That's physics spelled F-I-Z-Z-I-C-S. And click 100 free experiments. Well, it's been uh, quite the year for us, just like everybody. I am here in uh, Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. Uh, Just yesterday, our code red, which is our highest level of uh, isolation and restrictions um, due to COVID, was extended for another two weeks um, to accommodate for post-holiday season and any potential gatherings that have been happening. Yeah. So we've been uh, on an isolation lockdown since mid-November. So we are in the thick of our second wave of COVID. And uh, in the educational system, that looks like all sorts of different things for different grade levels, for different teachers, uh, even within our different communities. So uh, every person is really encountering a very unique teaching and learning situation. Uh, it makes it tough. I mean, whether they've got internet or they've got devices do they have materials to do the hands-on things that you might want them to do in, the, in your lessons? It's a challenge. Yeah. And, and, and going from November, so like it's, it's mid-January right now, Nelly, so that's quite a long time for kids. How, how are the younger ones holding up? Well, the way we have it set up here um, in Manitoba is that there has not been a lot of transmission in schools officially. Um, there are cases but in schools, but it's not being transmitted in schools because of our uh, very strict protocol. Um, so kindergarten or kindergarten through grade 12 education has been in person this entire time until the beginning of January, where now grade seven to 12 is uh, fully online and only our younger ones are uh, actually in the classroom. Um, but again, you know, every community, every school, every classroom is in a different situation in terms of separate classrooms or partial face-to-face or online learning or not online, but completely remote. Again, it's just, uh, it's such a diverse situation for every teacher out there. Oh, wow. That's it. It's, yeah, I, I, I was connecting with some parents um, over the weekend and they were just, uh, they, were, they had nothing but, well, praise <laughs> for what the people have got to actually deal with right now. So it's, they're doing an amazing job. So uh, tell us, so how, how long have you been teaching in Manitoba? Well, I started teaching in 2002. I was born and raised in the city here. So I'm a full on city girl here in Winnipeg, Manitoba. Um, And I really craved to uh, start my teaching career with something different. I wanted an adventure. And uh, my original thought was that I would like to go overseas and I would like to teach and travel, uh, explore an area for about a year and then explore a different area of the world for about a year and teach there 
and uh, continue on for a couple of years that way. Um, when I graduated university, I realized how broke I actually was <laughs> and that this <laughs> giant paycheck was not waiting for me at the end of my university career. What? Really? Um, <laughs> I know. It's shocking. It's shocking. <laughs> and uh, so I decided I still wanted that dream. I wanted to do something different and out of my comfort zone, um, but to keep it a bit more local to start with, to get on my feet. I ended up uh, going to Cormorant, Manitoba, so a very small community um, in northern Manitoba. So the community has less than 400 people. Um, the school was, you know, 20 feet from the door of where I was living. And uh, it really changed the entire trajectory of my teaching career. Um, this is where I fell in love with being in a small community and really connecting with my students in a different way than I had in the city in, in larger numbers. Um, really connecting with my coworkers, my colleagues, and learning from them properly, uh, and really getting that exposure to everything that science can be from on the land learning and that authentic connection that we all have. Um, so I ended up going to Cormorant for one year and staying for 10. And uh, now, <laughs> now I am back in Winnipeg. So I have, you know, my grocery store down the street again, which is yeah. fantastic. But in regular years, I still get to teach and travel throughout my entire school division, including back to Cormorant on occasion. Um, so now I uh, look after schools all throughout our province in science education. Um, and uh, yeah, we just uh, we go on the road and we support our teachers, we support our youth, and we just try to bring new innovative ways of teaching and being and doing into our uh, science education. That's awesome. Your story reminds me, it's almost in parallel of a really good friend of mine, um, uh, Sean Forty, who was on the podcast uh, quite a while ago, but he went up to uh, Northern Alaska, um, very small community as well. Uh, thought he was only going to do a few months there and <laughs> stayed there for a few years. And that, that produced a, a real travel bug in him. He ended up, uh, and still is, teaching in South Korea. Um, again, it's, it's that you just never know where teaching is going to take you. <laughs> you just really don't. It's, it's so cool to hear that. Um, yeah, so, so you drive uh, between different schools to support the communities in different ways. How big is the district? Um, our school division covers almost our entire province of Manitoba, which is larger than the state of California. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> it's big. And, uh, you know, our, our farthest community uh, would be that we could drive to would be about a 12 hour drive cool. north from where I am. Um, however, many of our communities are only accessible uh, by ice roads in certain seasons or train or helicopter or airplane. Um, all the way up to Churchill, Manitoba, which is the polar bear capital of the world, um, is uh, one of our schools right along the Hudson Bay in the subarctic, and that's only accessible by train or plane. Wow. So our methods of travel are diverse for sure. Uh, sometimes it feels lucky when we can get in the vehicle and just drive somewhere and it's not too, too far. Well, that's actually, um, that brings a challenge too, because with isolation comes, well, I, how removed are you from the set, you know, curriculum so to speak i mean the curriculum's there for you to regardless of whether you're in the metropolitan area or in a remote area um how do you how do you find that the teaching communities um well how diverse how different is it between um you know a site that's you know honestly accessible only by ice road and so resources may or may not be around as easily compared to metropolitan do you see much of a difference sorry oh, we had, we had, sorry we had, i need a repeat on the 
last part of your question. Uh, but yeah, it had, it had a bit of a breakup on the net. Um, yeah, how, um, so with the, uh, with, with the differences between Metropolitan and, and people who are way out, who can only be accessed really uh, via ice road, and that's if it's not shut, um, I mean, is it, is it much of a challenge in terms of resourcing for those schools? Yeah, uh, I think everything's a bit more of a challenge and it's not just the resources because, I mean, we have ability to send packages and get resources back and forth, but that immediacy of what you need is just not there. There may not be the option of running down to a dollar store or uh, a Walmart and grabbing what you need for the next day. So that, uh, that element of pre-planning and really forward thinking, not in the next couple of days, but what you might need in the next couple of months always has to be there. Um, and I find that's actually a skill that our teachers already excel at. So when it comes to distance education, that pre-planning and that pre-thinking is already kind of ingrained in us just because of our situations um, and our locale. So um, that part, it's difficult, I would say, at the best of times. Um, and uh, now with everything, it's just, it's really forward thinking. It's really looking at the end point of what you want our students and our teachers to be achieving and succeeding at, uh, and then figuring out what kind of pathway can we get there if we don't have access to materials and if we don't have access to technology. Um, I know when I was teaching in Cormorant, um, you know, cell service doesn't exist in many of our more uh, northern rural communities. Um, and sometimes the Wi-Fi that we had in the school or just, you know, general internet was down if it was too cloudy out that day <laughs> or, yeah. you know, all of a sudden the wind blew and a power line went out and all of a sudden it's two days with no power. So it was a, a constant expectation of handling something unexpected. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, actually, it vaguely reminds me of in the 80s trying to get analog TVs to work. And you had to stand in a certain place in your living room or something like that to get them to work. But uh, yeah. no, no, I get it. The, um, so obviously, I mean, you, you love your science. You teach science lots of ways and you help teachers to teach science in lots of ways. But then again, there are different ways to teach science, different methods of instruction and whatnot. Is there, one, is there one size fits all or do you find that this particular uh, way of teaching for this group of kids might be better and whatnot? Well, I, guess, I guess what I'm asking is how, how do you like to best teach science, I guess? Yeah, I think the, the one size fits all um, is non-existent for us. <laughs> and once you let that go, once you really accept that one size fits all doesn't work, it kind of opens up a whole lot of other doors inadvertently. So uh, what we really celebrate is finding your voice as a teacher and, and what kind of perspective you want. If you want to be out on the land and you want to be outside of your classroom as much as possible, let's find a way to get you there. You know, if you as a science teacher really like, you know, inventing as an example, and you want to include invention and innovation in that way in all that you do, let's find a way to get you there. Um, so really, it's a celebration of diversity, not only in our communities, but of the teacher and thus of our students as well. Absolutely. And what's really, really cool is when you see schools running programs in conjunction with other schools and seeing that cross-pollination between schools can be really, really fun. I mean, I remember watching um, a, a cluster of schools running a shared experiment where they had the kids would do one thing and then they post the materials to the next group. A little bit expensive, let's be honest, but they were the kids would then sort of build off this thing that they're were, they were doing. It's, it's really neat. And it, it all comes down to what, op, what flexibility, what, how can you 
find that gap in the curriculum to make it not just a stock standard one size fits all. And that's awesome that you're doing. It's, it's really Absolutely. Cool. And in our curriculum here, we do have a lot of that freedom. I think, uh, you know, there's a, a lot of change happening, not only in the recent year, but overall, when you think about educational or the, I guess the base beliefs about how education can best suit our youth and our teachers, it's absolutely changing right now. Um, we're going from a very structured must teach this and this and this and this and this in a list format to an exploratory base, a uh, deep dive into whatever happens to come up. Um, and uh, we're lucky here in Manitoba, our curriculum is a bit dated. Um, however, right in our curriculum, it says that these are suggestions and guidelines and there's a lot of room for flexibility and teacher choice of yeah. what you would like to do and, and, uh, it really is fantastic to actually look at our curriculum and try to get away from that list and open up possibilities. Um, some ways that we do that are with the promotion of cross-curricular teaching, where you use science as your base, because that always seems to be the easy win for both students and teachers. They're into it, they're on board with it. Um, and then building out, building out your literacy, your numeracy goals, you know, art, culture, whatever it happens to be. Um, but you're looking at it more of a whole curriculum, much like you would look at a person as a whole self, not compartmentalized. Yeah. And that again, opens up a lot of uh, different options. That's really cool. It's quite a, quite a vibrant time to be involved in education when you, when it's getting, you know, changed, pivoted for uh, cliche term, but, <laughs> but it, yeah. it, 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 it is, you know, a lot of fun with it. How's it, how's it being received? Because I mean, I, I suspect that something, you know, it's one thing to, to really want to embrace change, but change isn't for everyone too. Yeah. <laughs> so that's how's true. that going? And I think that's, uh, that's something that goes with, we need to be well aware of what's happening and respect that diversity. Some people prefer to be within a very structured scenario and that's where their comfort level is. Um, and that's okay too. Um, sometimes you go into a, a classroom and all you see is utter chaos and for some people that's a place of comfort and celebration yeah. and for other people that's so much anxiety and you cannot handle that for more than two minutes and you need to walk away <laughs> um you know so everybody's in a different scenario no, totally and just it. trying to work within that I mean, that's going to be where the fun, what's funny is though, because I mean, the, um, having like going to these different sites, different schools, I mean, you're going to see some serious diversity in just, Absolutely. and not just in the instruction, but honestly, even just the, the sites themselves. So some will be just in a zenic row of tables, row of tables, row of tables, desk, <laughs> and then that, that's it. And others, I mean, I'll go into some rooms and I, I went, to, went to one site and they had sofas and it wasn't like really expensive stuff. They'd actually gotten something from the local, um, from the secondhand store. They tried to make the place look like a home and they had pot plants hanging from the ceiling and whatnot. It was totally different. <laughs> and this is the public yeah. school. <laughs> it, was, it was just, yeah, yeah it, it's funny. It's funny how it is. I mean, obviously, um, I mean, all this comes with effort and time and whatnot, but I mean, having it as a, as a safe place for kids is always a good thing for sure. Um, one of the Absolutely. things I'd like to ask people uh, who do a lot of, you know, been teaching for a while with science is it's always nice to, to give you an idea, like, like almost like a pop thing. Like if you had students walking into your room, just say they were middle grades, I don't know, grade seven, done. That'll do. uh, so the grade seven, they walk on in and you know that you're going to have them for about oh, just 10 minutes, just, just something quick, fast. I, I need to do, teach them a quick science, quick science activity, like an engagement tool, like a quick, a fun thing to do quickly. Uh, what would be a quick go-to thing that, that you could quickly do? The reason why I ask this is so that people who are listening can, well, do it, try it. 
yeah, try something right away. Um, so years ago, I developed a document um, with ideas from kindergarten all the way to grade 12. Uh, and I called this document the five minute field trip, um, which is really a way for schools and classrooms just to get outside, even if it's only for five minutes. Um, and do an activity that's quick and easy and fun, but relates to a concept. So really just trying to connect students to the content that they're talking about and also build your relationship between teacher and classroom as well. Um, I revised it this year to, you know, not just getting out into the schoolyard, but also into your home yard, your area that if you can get out for five minutes and do one of these activities and connect it to your content, hey, that's a baseline for exploration right there. So um, within that, one item that I always promote is the concept of the scientific scavenger hunt. So, you know, even just looking around the classroom, can you tell me, can you spot five items that demonstrate chemical or physical change? Can you show me five items or can you tell me three states of matter in this classroom? Um, you know, and just getting kids engaged, hands-on, minds-on, getting them active and uh, really looking at their home local environment in a different way yeah that's awesome actually it reminds me my brain went to simple machines it reminds me um you just have you know what, what random things are in the room that show levers or pulleys or whatever it is and have all these kitchen utensils just randomly sending just on their desks when they walk into the room they go why is a can opener in on my desk <laughs> what are you about to do yeah yeah that, that that's really good i mean i mean obviously that i mean that, that that's a really useful useful tool for getting kids you know you know brains ticked on you know what are five things in their room they could do i mean Sometimes we'll have lessons that go completely the wrong way, right? <laughs> Where they go, you know, Absolutely. I thought this is what was going to happen. And then this happened. But then there was a learning out of it. I mean, you know, things go wrong all the time. I mean, we've, we've had experiments. You know, not, you know, no one gets hurt. But, yeah, that certainly sometimes don't always work. I mean, what are some ones where you've gone, you know what, I, I thought this was going to do it and it, it, and it didn't. <laughs> are there any yeah. you can think, think to mind right now? There's definitely one that stands out to me because um, it didn't go well because of my own doing. And, uh, you know, I was about seven hours north, so I'm on the road all the time. Um, I have, you know, a truck packed full of science and uh, I go to the school. I was working with a grade four, five, six class and we had talked about owl pellets previously and we wanted oh, to yeah. dissect some owl pellets and uh, find out what the owl had eaten and regurgitated and dive into these really cool, gross owl pellets. And kids love that. Um, so we wanted to dissect them. And uh, I ordered the owl pellets. I had them with me. I had the dissecting tools with me. We did a pre-lesson a couple of months earlier. So now I was returning to do this most exciting part. And uh, the students start to open up and dive into their owl pellets. And uh, one student from across the room said, are these real? Like, is this the real thing? And I said, yes, absolutely. This is the real thing. These come from owls. This is what they ate. And, uh, you know, they're picking apart bits of fur and, and guts and finding the bones. And uh, then another student said, are you sure this is real? So I'm like, <laughs> of course it's real. And I went over to show them. And what I mistakenly ordered and didn't know ahead of time was I ordered some kind of synthetic owl pellet which was basically instead of what the owl actually regurgitated and the, the guts and the bones within that, that the students would pick apart, was essentially a ball of dryer lint with some plastic bones in the middle. Oh. And they just kind of opened up this ball of dryer lint. So it was this fake owl pellet. 
And, you know, there's, there's no repairing that. I can't run to a store. I can't reorder and have it in two days. I mean, it's okay. months before I make my way back to the school and correct that. So we had a good laugh at that. I ended up having um, the teacher go double check their stockpile and they had a smaller number of very old owl pellets, but it was enough for us to at least share. Uh, so we ended up getting through the activity, but uh, by chance, I also had a bucket of uh, cow eyeballs in my vehicle for oh, another sure. school. So I, yeah, just by chance. So I just <laughs> went and, and grabbed those instead. Um, and we dissected those. And uh, the motto was, the more gross, the better it is. <laughs> so they were happy with that. That's cool. Um, it was lucky that you had the, the, the teacher had the extra owl pellets. But, it, but as much as that could have felt like, oh, my gosh, this, it's all gone bad. At the same time, that weirdly opens up an opportunity to talk about microplastics and things going into the environment. Because if you know, you've got these plastic bones and bits and pieces in there, I mean, now you've got the like, well, this is these are chunky bits. Imagine if they're really small. And I mean, this is a real thing that's you know generally part of the you know discourse right now, <laughs> not just in science but in culture. Uh, Absolutely. So, yeah. So I mean, I mean, that's what I love about when things go wrong. There's nearly always some way you can repair it. <laughs> some way. Yeah. Mm. And what I really liked is that you know, when the first student questioned me, and I wasn't right beside them, and I said, you know, of course, these are real. And then the second student questioned me, I actually really loved that they felt comfortable enough to say, hey, are you sure? You know, yes. and they were using their own process of, a, of analysis and looking at what was in front of them, um, versus what I was telling them, and they found that disparity, and they were able to move forward in that. So, um, you know, even how we laughed about it and talked about it and revisited again in a different way later on, it ended up being a, you know, all in. I wouldn't change it. It ended up being really great. <laughs> oh, that's, that's the acid test. Would you do it again? Definitely. I think as a science teacher, you know, whether you're working with other teachers or whether you're working with students, the more you become comfortable with being wrong, Yes. the easier your life will be. And uh, I think that is a, a top skill here. I am wrong all the time. And, uh, and I have to learn to love it because every time I'm wrong, I'm absolutely learning, whether it be from my colleagues or from our young people um, or just in general from mistakes I make. And uh, reaching that comfort level of being wrong is probably a greatest skill set. Well, it is. I mean, also, if you're, um, if you're right all the time, that means you're not pushing your boundaries, are you? Like it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's all part of it. Um, look, hey, look, just uh, just in, just before we you head on off, I just want to just quickly just ask. Um, I mean, if you had, uh, I don't know, if just say you had to, uh, you're in front of a bunch of instructional coaches. We often ask me, you know, what if, if if you had a bunch of being teachers? But what if you had instructional coaches in front of you who are just about to do, I don't know, start looking after a province the size of Manitoba, uh, and they were about to start like next week, first time. <laughs> I mean, what, what what sort of advice would you give them? Um, I suppose I would give a, a couple of small pieces of advice. The first is to um, be sure to relish who you are. So what you bring to the table is not going to be the same as what the next person would bring or the last person would bring. Um, but really just relish and celebrate what you have to bring to the table in terms of your beliefs, your values about the educational system, your expertise, you know, all of that bring it to the table and be proud of what that is. Um, at the same time, being willing to open your mind and to learn alongside your colleagues and from students as well. Um, not, 
you know, kind of releasing that need that we need to know everything and that we need to be the experts in every single piece of what we're doing. I think what we really need to be the experts on is uh, just opening our minds and being willing to learn as we go as well. Love it. That's good. That's good words to live by. And honestly, that's good words to live by outside of education. <laughs> Probably a good way to go. <laughs> True. <laughs> Now, look, thank you very much, Jacqueline, for jumping on the podcast. Look, I'm really looking forward to um, uh, this thing that we're doing uh, with the, the Learning Jam coming up. Um, and it was really cool to hang out on that panel that we did with Facebook just, just gosh, uh, half an hour ago. Uh, but, yeah, yeah. It's, it's good fun. But, look, thank you very much. Have a fantastic weekend. And uh, hopefully uh, these lockdowns and all this stuff that's been going on goes away soon. And uh, yes. admit, the silver lining is that, you know, we've, a lot of us are now used to this webcam thing. So, I mean, might be able to connect with those students who are 12 hours ahead, uh, a little bit easier, <laughs> a little bit more, which is good. Absolutely. Thanks, Ben. I really hope we can connect again. And uh, I'm also looking forward to the Learning Jam. Hope to see a lot of people out there. Awesome. Take it easy. See you later. Okay. Take care. We hope you've been enjoying the Physics Ed podcast. We love making science make sense. Why don't you book us for a science show or workshop in your school? If you're outside of Australia, you can connect with us via a virtual excursion. See our website for more. Well, there we go. We just heard from Jacqueline Monteith. You can tell loves her science and importantly, loves helping students no matter where they are, no matter how isolated they actually are. Now, if you're wondering about the Learning Jam, head on over to totalapp.com. So T-O-D-D-L-E app. Dot com And there you'll see the Learning Jam, which is this really interesting learning event, which is happening in January, where you can be real involved no matter where you are in the world. It is a 24-hour global learning event happening between January 23 and 24, and you can totally get involved. So uh, look, that's enough for this particular podcast. As usual, we have more science podcasts coming up throughout the year. And uh, I hope you're having a blast teaching kids no matter where you are and no matter how they are situated. So you've been listening to me, uh, Ben Newsom from Physics Education, and this is the Phys Ed Podcast, and I hope to catch you another time. You've been listening to another Physics Ed Podcast. We're excited about science. Subscribe to us on iTunes to download the next episode as soon as it's released. And don't forget, for hundreds of ideas, free experiments, our new Be Amazing book and more, go to physicseducation.com.au. That's physics spelled F-I-Z-Z-I-C-S. This podcast is part of the Australian Educators Online Network. AEON.net.au